Hello, and a very warm welcome back to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, and also a very warm welcome to 2022. Happy New Year to you and everybody listening. I'm Stuart, by the way. And I'm Cristiano. In today's episode, we're going to be doing something slightly different. We're going to be taking a look at the work of Maurice Gibb, circa 1969-1970. And go through his varied output that year. From somebody that went into a musical to, I think, produces some fabulous acetates. Yes. This is material which is mostly efficiently unreleased. Yes, it's going to be really interesting, isn't it, to hear what The Quiet One actually did, especially under the radar of Barry and Robin, who's always been like the focal part of the group, because you always associate Morris sort of piano background and background harmonising. So which it's an episode I'm really looking forward to. We actually get to hear Morris, because I think he produces everything, he plays a lot of the instruments. So yes. And I'm sure that there will be listeners out there who aren't familiar with the music that we'll be discussing today, or maybe you've only heard one or two of the tracks. Dad, would you like to introduce to everyone just what The Loner and what this episode will be about? Well, what we're going to do, we're going to go through... There is a loose track list that we've found of, I think it's 11 tracks, isn't it? And they've called it The Loner. And so what we're going to do on this episode, we're going to go through each of those tracks on the proposed album. We're still going to give it our marks out of 10, the same as done with the others. And then following that, we'd like to just we'd like to gather everything that we've found, um, starting in '69, as Chris said, going through to '70. And there are a lot of songs that aren't just unreleased, but are just titles that we have haven't heard at all. No. Before preparing for this podcast, I was not familiar with the material under the banner of the loner. And as I'm sure that there'll be listeners out there who also aren't familiar, I'm hoping that you'll be able to sort of see it through my eyes of this material which was pretty much new to me it was yeah. like discover it really was discovering a lost Bee Gees album well i i'm not the same as you i mean obviously i've had i've had this one since 2002 so i think it was a bootleg of the famous bootleg that most people seem to have and i and i played it but it's probably going to this podcast it, it's exciting me because i'll be able to you know focus on it rather than just play it once and then right okay the quality is pretty poor you know it, it doesn't it's not worthy of repeat playings, but we've managed to find slightly better versions, haven't we? Yes. Which make it more listenable and hopefully more enjoyable for everybody. Yes, we'd like to give great credit to PJ and his website, Albums I Wish Existed, and credit to Steve Warwick, a.k.a. The Lazenby, who provided PJ with a copy of the loaner material. PJ was able to create a version of this album with improved audio quality which we'll be using throughout this episode so thank you to both of them for their great work. In upcoming episodes we will also be discussing Barry and Robin's, well Barry's album which is still unreleased mostly, Robin's fortunately thanks to the work of Andrew Sandoval and others Sing Slowly Sisters has been released but way back around 2002-2003 did you get the loner, Sing Slowly Sisters and The Kids No Good altogether? Within a matter of probably a month or two. Yeah, I managed to find somewhere on the internet and located three three CDs worth. I was really surprised with The Kids No Good. The quality, the audio quality of it was superb. Um, it virtually sounds like it's come from the master. But then, unfortunately, it was downhill then. I mean, Robbins was okay. You know, you could, you could hear it above the crackles and pops but 
you could still appreciate what material he was using. But with the one we're going to visit the loner, the quality was was even poorer. But again, it's brilliant with this having to hear better versions. Okay, the loner material was recorded at Nova Studios in London, and this was from the 9th of December 1969 going through to the 23rd of March 1970. So this was that no man's land period during the split. In it's very time, quick though, isn't it, to do an album? It is, because in this time, in February, we've had Robin's Reign from Robin. Yeah. Barry's gone off and done his own thing. But then, only a month after, the 23rd of March, a month later, we get Cucumber Castle. So it's sort of an odd period of, are the Bee Gees together, aren't they? So it's virtually in, in the can? Yes. Before Cucumber Castle was released? Yeah. Amazing. And looking at Andrew Sandoval's book, he confirms that the album Master for the Loner was compiled on the 14th of November 1970. So that's a, quite a while after about... So from March, so it's a good eight months, isn't it? Yeah, until that was the Master was compiled... But what was interesting was this was the 14th of November 1970. That's eight days after the release of Lonely Days, which was the first single from Two Years On. You said that it was done in November. The album was finished in March. I don't think that track listing changed from March to November then. That, That obviously stayed the same. But because in between that time, he did record some more material. Yes, he did. There must have been intention, and even after they'd gotten back together for Two Years On, released the first single, because sessions for Two Years On began in June 1970, so there must have still been an intention to do something with this material, even though the Bee Gees yeah. had gotten back together. Do you think it was management then that yeah. said, join together, right, we don't want, we're looking forward, we're not looking what you've done, and... Cancelled the release. Yes. Yeah. It does still surprise me, though, that, that a lot of this stuff didn't even one or two songs, wasn't thrown into the mix when they go to the next album. Yeah, because there's many songs of Morris's from this period which would have really improved two years on. Yeah, and it, it same goes for Robin and Barry, isn't it? Yeah. There's quality stuff that would far improve that one. And it's just quite bizarre, and I, I don't know why, that, that it was just pushed to one side, but there we go. into the music let's catch up with what Morris was doing around 1969-1970 on the 18th of February of 1969 Morris married Lulu who was born Mary MacDonald McLaughlin Laurie Lulu was 20 Morris was just 19 years old wow but they all married young yeah. three of the brothers the new musical express on the 22nd of February 1969 described it as the pop wedding of the year so far but the enemy go on to say that this was not the quiet family affair that the couple had hoped for. Some 3,000 fans, including many schoolchildren on half-term holiday, turned up to wish the couple good luck. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the following month, Chris, she went over to Madrid because she was the UK's entrant in the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, yeah? Yep, yeah, she did a song called Boom Bang A Bang, which did really well. 
I think there was four of them that won it. There was obviously the UK, Netherlands, France and Spain. Mm-hmm. So four all tied. And I think that was, there was only 16 people that used to go in it then. As opposed <laughs> to now, it's eternity, isn't it? So then there were just the 16. Did you watch that Eurovision live? No, the first one, funny enough, the first one I remember is the following year with uh, Mary Hopkin. Mm-hmm. And then a couple months later, Chris, in May, um, unfortunately, uh, Morris is involved in a crash in his Rolls Royce and uh, suffers two black eyes. And then literally three days later, he's on with uh, his brother doing Tomorrow Tomorrow on Top of the Pops. Good job it was in black and white, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And also, um, Morris turned down an offer to be in the musical Hair. Funny enough, that was... I think it was owned or something to do with Robert Stigwood. So it must have been him that must have said to Morris, I think it's worth you giving it a go. But obviously it didn't lead to anything. Well, between Barry, Morris and Robin, they've got plenty of head hair to go around. But in 1970, Morris was involved with a musical. This was called Sing a Rude Song. And Morris starred alongside British household names such as Barbara Windsor and Dennis Quilly. This musical was produced by Robert Stigwood and opened at the Greenwich Theatre on the 17th of February 1970. Interestingly, this is the same week that Barry was busy at work in sessions for The Kids No Good. The music for Sing a Rude Song was provided by Ron Grainer, who, for me, that name rang a bell because he he composed the Doctor Who theme. Oh, okay. Oh, well spotted. <laughs> and an LP soundtrack for Sing a Rude Song was released in May 1970. The soundtrack LP was produced by Morris and features his vocals on various numbers. Yeah, I think, according to Joseph Brenner, it's at least three. Mm-hmm. It's never been put onto CD, but I don't see it ever going onto CD. Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or luckily, depending on your um, thoughts of it. Well, I've never listened to the LP. I don't know much about this musical in terms of its what it's actually about, other than just a, a brief overview, but it seems very much of that period. Well, I, th- I think it's one of the... I mean, according to Andrew Sanderville's book... It's a musical biography of Mari Lloyd, an English musical star, given to raucous renditions of otherwise innocent songs. Morris portrays uh, Marie's third and final husband, who, his name is Bernard Dillon, is a champion jockey who won the Epsom Derby in 1910 and was legally married to her up to her passing in October 1922. Their stormy relationship is said to have contributed to Mary's downfall as a performer and ultimate demise. Mm. As far as I'm aware, this story, this musical, hasn't had a... There haven't been any other productions of it since 1970, not that I could find. Well, if he was in it in February, and I don't think it ran particularly long, so it wasn't a big seller or popular or... And there was no film adaptation? No, so even with Morris's name attached to it, it, it didn't draw the crowds. So with all this activity going on, Morris then goes and joins a group called Tintin, yep. which comprises of two guys from Australia. Steve Kipner, who was the son of the Bee Gees Australian producer, 
Nat Kiplan and Steve Groves. And the two Steves were signed to Robert Stigwood with Morris as their producer. Okay. Their first recording session was in May 69 where they produced about four tracks. And Morris plays bass, piano, harpsichord, drums and mellotron. And there is two, two of these four tracks released in A and a B side. The first one was called Only Ladies Play Croquet, backed with He Wants to Be a Star. I presume I can't find anything that neither of these tracks almost have sunk without trace because I can't see where there was any chart positions for this one. Okay. But luckily, there's another session, I believe May, June of that year, where they do another five or six songs, of which produced another single called Toast and Marmalade for Tea, which which did really well, both in the UK and, I believe, in the US. Do you remember that song? Vaguely. And it's occasionally played, played on oldies stations. And the B-side of it was called Manhattan Woman, which came from a sort of October 69 session. Also worth noting, in 1970, Morris was supposedly involved in the recording sessions for one of the most legendary albums of that year, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Oh, okay. Recording for All Things Must Pass took place between May to October 1970, and Morris recalled being involved with the song Isn't It a Pity? However, it wasn't specified whether this was version one or two. Now, the trouble is, with All Things Must Pass, there is a lack of documentation with regards to session dates and who was involved with which session. So it can't be confirmed whether Morris really was involved. His involvement would have been on keys, but it would make sense that he would have been involved. Phil Collins, in Ray Coleman's 1997 biography, recalled Morris being at the sessions. And also Ringo Starr played drums on many of the songs of the album. Ringo was Morris's neighbour. And earlier on in the year, Morris produced Bye Bye Blackbird, which featured on Ringo's not-so-legendary debut album. <laughs> oh, Blackbird, bye, bye. Yeah, so with that connection to Ringo, it makes sense that Morris would have been invited down to the sessions. But it tends to be with people like Morris, who are not the main singer, but he he's, can play a variety of instruments. They can lend themselves to studio work with different groups, i.e. Tintin, working with Billy Laurie, and contributes, I suppose, to any other artist. If he's got free time, if yeah. obviously the brothers are busy, then he's able to... Hence why he was winning with George Harrison. Yeah. And also with Ringo Starr. Almost all of the songs that we'll be discussing during today's episode were co-writes between Morris and Billy Laurie, the younger brother of Lulu. In a quotation from Tom Kennedy, he says, Billy was a fun character and probably very good for Morris at the time, because Lulu was away. He was very supportive of Morris. Although Billy's been quite successful in the music business, singing was not really his forte. The singer in that family was always Lulu. Yeah, but it's quite strange though, isn't it, that... You don't hear him 
as backing vocalist or duetting with Morris at all on this, do you? No, and, and that is where it makes it sometimes a little bit difficult with these songs to know what it, how was that co-writing the sense yeah. of who wrote which lyric or was it Billy writing the lyrics, Morris doing the chords in the same way that he did with the Bee Gees and his brothers? Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Because we don't know, I don't know any Billy Laurie records, so I can't sort of get what perspective, what sort of style he, he prefers. But yeah. obviously to, to cover out with Morris, then it must be quite similar music tastes. Yeah, they must have found... Some common ground, mustn't they? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Alongside Morris and Billy Laurie, other musicians who were present during Sessions for the Loner were Jeff Bridgeford on drums, Leslie Harvey on guitar, Johnny Coleman on keys, and Jerry Shuri, who was the arranger. So looking at that then, Chris, he didn't use any of the members of Tintin, the two Steves. So whether he wanted to keep it as a separate entity or not, I don't know. But yeah, you would have thought, as he sort of worked with them, they might have, you know, created a few songs that could have gone with Morris. Perhaps were these songs to be a bit more developed, that might have been the case. The track listing for the loner that we'll be going through in this episode is as follows. So on side one, Journey to the Misty Mountains, The Loner, Please Lock Me Away, I've Come Back, Soldier Johnny, She's the One You Love, that's end of side one. Okay, yeah. Flip over onto side two, Railroad, Laughing Child, Something's Blowing, Silly Little Girl, Insight. A lot of their albums is six one side and five the other. Yeah, that seems to be about 20 minutes a side. Yeah. I think that is the perfect length. Yes, I did read that Wes Farrell, a producer, he sort of said that if you do an album, put six tracks on first side, five on the next side, then it encourages the listener then to get up and turn the record back to side one again. Mm-hmm. Don't quite get that, but he he thought that it was a perfect five, six and five. Yeah, I agree with him. An album of 11 or 12 tracks that are all three to four minutes, I find very palatable more digestible mm. than getting something that's as we'll get on to sort of in the 80s and 90s with the Bee Gees where you're sort of getting songs at six minutes and I suppose if you put six tracks on one side far on the other it give you a little bit extra space to make songs slightly longer yes yeah and thinking about it a good example of that would be ESP which is 11 songs and all of them except for the reprise of ESP at the end of the album they're all four to five minutes long well, that's the way Barry sort of tended to work towards the, well, the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah. And then you get to high civilization. I think you'll probably find they go even longer. Hmm, averaging six minutes. Yeah. But more on that later. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll begin this album with the instrumental Journey to the Misty Mountains. Thank you. 
this is a very atmospheric opener to the well, album. Well, that's just what I was thinking, Chris, that there's never been an album start by any of the Bee Gees solo with an instrumental. Yeah, and it's very pastoral in a way that we've not seen on any other Bee Gees album. It's got a certain quality to it that we, we don't ever seem to see again or ever saw before. When I listen to it, I always think of it as like a 1960s TV theme. Mm-hmm. Um, you got these things like Randall and Hopkirk, sort of, um, you know, comedy but mystery. It's got Journey to the Misty Mountains, but I always think it's Journey to the Mystery Mountains, not the Misty. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like this. It improves with repeat listenings. Especially the way it will then segue into The Loner. Yeah. Now, for me, with the title referencing the Misty Mountains and the journey, this always puts me in mind of J.R.R. Tolkien and his work, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and his creation of Middle-earth, because in that we have the Misty Mountains. I've got a passage here from The Hobbit from Chapter 4, Over and Under Hill, and I'll read it to you. Okay, yeah. And it's all about the Misty Mountains, and it... Whenever I listen to this song, the imagery from this passage is what it always reminds me of. Bilbo knew that something unexpected might happen, and he hardly dared to hope that they would pass without fearful adventure over those great tall mountains with lonely peaks and valleys where no king ruled. They did not. All was well, until one day they met a thunderstorm. More than a thunderstorm, a thunder battle. You know how terrific a really big thunderstorm can be down in the land and in a river valley, especially at times when two great thunderstorms meet and clash. More terrible still are thunder and lightning in the mountains at night, when storms come up from east and west and make war. The lightning splinters on the peaks and rocks shiver, and great crashes split the air and go rolling and tumbling into every cave and hollow and the darkness is filled with an overwhelming noise and sudden light. Mm. Because in the song, in the background, there are sound effects of thunder and lightning. Mm. Oh, it's very atmospheric, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this is a cinematic instrumental and it demonstrates Morris's great ability for arrangement and developing melody lines. Well, in fact, I've put a note here saying that later years, Morris goes on to do film scores, particularly in the 80s, he does a couple. So you can see really where this started, can't you? And I think as well, Morris does a few jingles mm. as well. Yes. When was this recorded? Well, I've got down that this was done in January 1970. Coincidentally, he did another song called, from the album called Insight, which is another instrumental. Well, then that makes me wonder whether these two songs weren't always intended to end up as instrumentals, whether they were put down as backing tracks. Maybe Morris intended for both to then get lyrics and vocals added, but then when the bootleg was created, they were still only instrumentals, yeah. and so therefore they gone on to be known as instrumentals. Well, I think actually the, the other song, Insight, did have vocals, but that got to wiped. Okay, well that disbands my theory. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth a try. Yeah. 
I find this instrumental to be really strong, particularly as an opener to this album, an 8 out of 10. I've gone with a 7. What I really like with Journey into the Misty Mountains is at the end when it quietens down and then we've got a very wistful segue into the loner. And so in a way, it acts as a prelude to the album. Yes, yeah. We spoke earlier of 1960s television. This will be playing over the opening credits. That's it, that's it. It's just like an opening to a film. So that's we have the, uh, the theme song starts and then whoosh, into the loner. this one for me it's the album highlight i mean this would grace any bg's album we've got very similar notes i said that this is a bg's level song in terms of quality and it's a highlight of the collection of material i mean morris songwriting just grows so much with this one yes it's incredible it's got a great catchy hook to it i mean for me i think this is his best song he's written since the bg's most of the songs we know are, are brm aren't they yeah. credited but you, you do tend to hit get songs where you think, ah, this is more Barry, this is more Robin. There's not many who would say this is a Morris song because we don't really know his style really, do we? No, other than something that I picked up beginning with this song, going through the rest of this album and then going into his later work throughout the Bee Gees is that Morris more than any of... You sort, you sort of work backwards with him, don't you, with his songwriting? Because yeah. you're thinking, ah... Because we know this, this is what he probably did on this track four albums ago. And more so than Barry and Robin, I find Morris to be the most autobiographical in his lyrics. We've got here, we've got The Loner. The lyrics read, I've been hung up and I've been left out by the only friends that I had. It's very much always in the first perspective. Whereas Robin tends to veer towards story songs, Mm. Mother and Jack, Alexandria, Good Time... And Barry, will, his songs will be very direct 
to but to other people so one minute woman third person yeah melody fair or i just want to take care of you yeah so it's always to someone else whereas morris is much more introspective songs reflecting his own mood and as you said working backwards in a way the loner as a song is like a really early companion piece to man in the middle yes yeah but i prefer this one The song features a heavy use of flute, which is an instrument that, again, isn't seen that much in the Bee Gees outside of the woodwind Mellotron on Kilburn Towers. So again, it links to the pastoral theme that I picked up on with Journey into the Misty Mountains. Looking on the Wikipedia page for The Loner, the genre of the album is described as progressive rock, blues rock, folk rock and country rock. Okay, well, I do you hear any rock in it? It's quite laid-backed music to me. Mm. You know, there's there's some up-tempo songs, but I, I tend to disagree with that, to be honest with you. A term that's often used to describe this album and Morris's work during this period is swamp rock. Yeah. We start to see that more later on in the album. But I, I can see elements of folk and pastoral and progressiveness here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as we go through it, there's a couple that come out as the a sort of countryish, very similar to Cucumber Castle. It's in that vein a few of the songs are. And better. And I, and I can see with the progressive instrumental work how that evolved from Odessa. Yeah. So there's a lot of influences that have gone into this. Yes. I mean this is one of the songs that I would love to hear digitalised. Yeah, me too. This would have made a strong had it have been released as a single at the time yeah. I think it would have done really well I would put this in any compilation if, I was, if it was a Bee Gees I would put any compilation it's a standout one so it would have to go on fortunately the loner did see some sort of an official release it was recorded by the Bloomfields who were a band that was formed by Morris Gibb Billy Laurie and Johnny Harris oh okay and this was used as the main title for the film Bloomfield some have laughed, some have cried for someone who looks just like me. And if I had to, I would die for every man's right to be free. Got no problems, just got the answers. Ain't been up, so I can't come down. Like the man who sings my song. This version from Bloomfields is interesting for various reasons. Firstly, what immediately stood out to me was the different verses. Yeah. Different lyrics. It wasn't, do you think it wasn't to fit the film? 
Yeah. Not that we've seen the film, have we? So it could have been an adaption of any of the storyline or anything. But according to Joseph Brennan's Gibsongs site, the singers on this version are Morris and Billy Laurie, with Morris singing in the low end and Laurie taking the higher register. Now, I don't know Billy Laurie's voice, so I'm this could be Laurie singing. And I'd listened to it again and I tried to pick out Morris. It could be him in the lower register, but it didn't quite sound... Yeah. I think this version, they've turned it into real middle-of-the-road sort of song. It's it's very... It reminds me of something that you've got a group of people singing and dancing from these sort of early 70s TV programmes. Yeah. Um, you used to get, like, the Lulu special and things like that, where you get a group of man and female dancers and they're miming to some song together. And it's just got that feel of it. It's not the sort of thing that, you know, I'd listen to. And yet I love the song... With Morris singing it on his own. It seems to lose the folk quality. Yeah. And it becomes a bit more, as you said. Meh. Yeah. Just yeah, it's bland and... Plods along Yeah. But it is nice to hear a better audio quality version. Oh, definitely. Is, so you can, yeah. you can appreciate the strings yeah. and the orchestration more. going to assume that your score for the loner is very positive easy i'm going with a nine on this yep i'm agreeing with you here a nine out of ten absolutely fantastic definitely worthy isn't it yeah well that brings us on to the third track on the album please lock me away This is another example of the introspective nature of Morris's writing. Please lock me away. Well, for me, I think this has got a lovely melody to it, this one. Very melancholic. I would say this is veering slightly to Cucumber Castle. We've mentioned this on other albums, but, but I've heard this, as we've mentioned, been listening to all this quite a few times. It's a bit of an earworm. As soon as you see Please Lock Me Away, you can sort of think of the... Now times I've heard it, actually. You, you, I can know the chorus straight away. Well, I can never see or hear the title Please Lock Me Away without thinking of McCartney's World Without Love, which starts with that. Oh, right, yeah, please. Yeah, you're right. There is certainly a sing-along quality to the chorus, almost in a sea shanty mm. type way. Broke my heart over like some now she's a lady who's broken that boy. Please lock me away. Find me a place and stay. 
So this one was recorded in March, so it must have been towards the end of the album, I suppose, all the sessions they've done. It seemed a very productive time for Morris, um, round about this time, with Please Lock Me Away, um, which they did. They also did the unreleased song, Going Where the Money Goes, Something's Blowing, Silly Little Girl. So yeah, quite a few. Yeah. And then a couple of days, I think it was around about the 23rd of March, and then a couple of days' time, uh, there were stereo mixes made. Okay. With Please Lock Me Away being the third song on the album, how do you feel about The Loner, three tracks in? Because you and I often talk about, oh, that was a really good opening three songs to an album. How do you think this compares? Well, I think it's quite good, actually, because you've got the instrumental. Yeah. And you've got a fairly upbeat song. And this obviously brings it back down slower again. But I think if you're going to produce a solo album, then you want it to sound different to what the group's doing. Yes which I find a couple of these solo albums don't. But with this, it's a good start, three in. I might bear different as the album goes along, but if you're asking me on the first three, I'd think, yeah, it's a good start to a, to a solo album. And what I like is that Morris is showcasing a lot of what he can do. So we've had the pastoral instrumental, we've then gone on to the rockier, the loner. And then back to influence. more familiar sound with this one. Yeah, here's three songs which just show the variety that Morris has. Mm. I've given Please Lock Me Away a 6 out of 10. Yeah, I've gone with a 6 as well, Chris. I think the trouble with this one, it suffers after following the loner. And also the next song, which I think is a really strong, another strong number. I've come back we have in my opinion the first definitive appearance of Swamp Rock yeah and for me this is the first time you get the appearance of the John Lennon vocals it follows on with Lennon's style of the period yeah yeah I can I can I can hear John Lennon singing this really could do and I think that you can kind of get a sense of what each brother is about by taking one song. So with Morris, you've got I've Come Back, which is another introspective downbeat, but in that swamp rock style, mm. which is completely different to the ballad Saved mm. by the Bell, which is then equally a completely different direction to where Barry was going with The Kids No Good. Yeah. This song was the B-side to Railroad. Mm. And if I brought the single and then I heard I've Come Back, I would have expected a different album to what it is. And I I have to agree with you there, because my first awareness of The Loner as an album and of this material was through the Tales of the Brothers Gibb Ultimate Biography, in which that described all of this music as swamp rock. 
And so I, and then I heard I've come back and I thought, okay, all of the songs must sound like this. So I was then very surprised to start playing the album and to be introduced with Journey to the Misty Mountains. Yeah. And then Please Lock Me Away. Songs that I, I wasn't expecting this style of music. I thought it would all be this rockier... But it's a typical B-side for Morris. I mean, I know we're jumping into the future, but when you think of Country Woman from 71 and then you've got a year later I think was it on time the b-side to my world they've got that as you say the swamp feel to it so this is like an early version of mixing them two both together I would find it very odd as I say as a fan and then somebody gives you a copy of the loner it's a real shame that I've Come Back, as the B-side to Railroad wasn't also included on Tales of the Brothers Gib, the box set, Mm. because Railroad was put on there. But this wasn't. And of all the songs on this album, this is the one that I'd love to hear a digital remaster for, because there's some great bass work here that's lost. And I know that Morris, who's a fantastic bass player, has put in great work there. I, I just really want to hear it. Yeah. Because I assume, Chris, that Morris played on most of the instruments on this. I know you mentioned earlier the musicians that helped him, but I think on most of these tracks, Morris played quite a bit himself, didn't he? Bass, keys, assisted by the session musicians that he had in, but you're quite right. And I can also hear that he's backing his own vocals in the same way that Robin did on Robin's Reign. Yeah. So not only was he playing this, I think he's also a ranger as well. Yeah. So it's a bit of a sort of a one-man band with, with help. With these set of songs, they're all co-writes with Billy Laurie. I would say that lyric-wise, it could be Billy as well. But because we don't really know too much of Billy's style of music and writing, it's a little bit difficult. He might have just helped out with... with composition Yeah, composition. Yeah, just, just Morris got this song and wants a bit of help finishing something or where where a line should go we don't know do we no how have you scored i've come back well pretty high actually for a b-side i've gone with eight Yep, I've given it an eight as well. Next up, we have Soldier Johnny. Gone. You'll have to break 
Well, I think with this one, we're going back a couple of albums to Odessa. Yes. It's got the orchestral beginning, hasn't it? The, you know, the big, the big orchestral song. And for this one, I mentioned the last one, I thought sounded John Lennon. This one, I think, I can imagine Barry singing this one. Easy. I think it's got his most Barry sound-alike vocal yeah. in this one. Well, that's the great thing, the magical thing about the Brothers Gibb. They have the ability to harmonise as one and often imitate and sound like each other, but then they've always got their own distinctive voice and style. Yeah. Around this time, there was also an EP released. I know Barry did an EP of, of songs from 70 that was released in 71. On the cuff, I, I can't remember when this was, was uh, released, but it was released in Germany, and they put four tracks on it, one being Soldier Johnny, Laughing Child... Something's Blowing, and Journey to the Misty Mountains. So I assume both those EPs are really rare. Yeah, that must be a really great collector's yeah. items. Yeah. And also, I would like to hear that, because you'd have Journey to the Misty Mountains in isolation, not going into the loner. Well, the way it's I've seen it written, it's the last track on side two. Yeah, so there must be a proper ending or a fade-out. Just a fade-out, I would think. Yeah. No, but yeah, that, that would be really good to hear. So I wonder whether those EPs came out... Did the Brothers Gibb have individual fan clubs? You know, I don't know. Or did they? was it all under the Bee Gees fan club? Good question. I don't know, Chris, to be honest with you. If anyone listening was part of these fan clubs or knows anything about them, if you have either of these EPs, write in, let us know. We'd love to find out. Yeah, or even photos of them. Absolutely. With regards to Soldier Johnny, I don't have much else to say about it. I'm pleased it's on the album. Yeah. I think its strongest quality is the arrangement. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the songs that he recorded in January, and this was done the same time as uh, the two instrumentals. This sits for me at a six out of ten. Yeah, I've gone for a six as well. So far, I think we've been pretty much yeah. the same on scores. Yeah. The next track is She's the One You Love.
the melody line for She's the One You Love is very monotonous with that C-sharp note for almost the entirety of the piece, with a da-dun, 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 yeah. a bit like Morse code. Yeah, yeah, that's true, isn't it? I put on my notes here, great to hear a more upbeat song. I think it's got quite a driving energy to it. But do you think this one has got more of a... I know we've done it before, but it's got more of a band feel to it than the rest of them. Because the rest of them, I think, are songs that he had a lot of them pre-written, brings them into the studio, and the way they, they reel them off, it must have been. How do you think this song stands as a closer to side one? Well, I've got two opinions on this one. I think, as the album, if we listen to the album now, and I'd say, yeah, that's great, it ends side one, it makes you want to turn over and listen to the side. But at the same point of view, I think if I was compiling this, I would have probably put this as about track three. Okay. And and probably swapped it with I've Come Back. Because I think it just needs that just to lift it just a little bit. You've got Please Lock Me Away. Then you go to I've Come Back. Then you drop back down again to um, Soldier Johnny. And then you've got this one. So, yeah, it's just a matter of... But, but as it stands at the moment, I think it ends side one pretty good. Yeah. Totally different to how it started. Yeah, there is a versatility that's been demonstrated by Morris across these six songs. Yeah, and as we'll see later on, he does actually bookend the album quite well. So this one was recorded in December 69. So this was among the batch of six or seven songs that he started then, obviously leading up to the rest of the album. So we've had I've Come Back and The Loner. Out of these six or seven songs, we've got five that would eventually make the album. So that was pretty good. This is another six out of ten. Yeah, I was, you know, I was going to say I'm pretty consistent with this and I'm going to go with the six as well. Yeah. What's also worthy of note is that at the end of this song, there is a snippet of studio conversation. I can't hear a thing, man. Right, better ping pong, eh? Better? And there's some mention of the term ping pong, which I know that we came across in a previous episode. I think we were just talking about Cucumber Castle, wasn't it? Yeah. And there is, we do have an instrumental that we can play that has been titled Ping Pong. This is a term that relates to bouncing tracks on a mixer. I believe it's going from going from one multi-track to the next. So although it's not in the album sequence that we're looking at, we'll play ping pong yeah. and uh, see what you think. have been a, an actual LP, turn it over, side two, Railroad. Mm. 
track this one that's a good pun (laughs) I just yeah yeah very good yeah thought that myself yeah great track and a brilliant opener to second side I think this is like the upbeat brother to don't forget to remember me yes it is again I'm saying that and then it's got the country it's got a lot of things this one it's got a, a slight country feel to Cucumber Castle but again, it's but it's got that swaying chorus, as in Robin's August October. You've got that brotherly thing, haven't you? Where elements of songs are coming out in each one of them, even though they're different, they're the same. I can see why they released this one as a single. It's a standout, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's definitely. And I'm so surprised it wasn't a hit, because if don't forget to remember, managed to go all the way to number two. I just don't get it why this one failed. But if you look at Robin, after Stayed by the Bell, he struggled. And then with Barry with his solo stuff, our kiss your memory faded as way. So none of them had any joy at all, did they, with these songs? So I don't know what radio push they got promotion-wise. Did they do any promotion for them? I'm not so sure. And how interested were territories outside of the UK. How interested were they in the Bee Gees as solo artists? Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? As opposed to just the Bee Gees. Yeah. See, the trouble is, by the time these a lot of these were recorded, then they were put out as singles, the speed the Bee Gees split and got back together again, it's all a little bit ties into one another. So that, what makes me think about pr- promotion and stuff, they'd already started doing the next project, so they weren't going to go eight months down the line promoting something that's that's gone. And that's why I was so surprised to learn that the loner, the master was compiled in November 1970, five months after two years on had started yeah. sessions. For a novice, it, it's very confusing, isn't it, to see to see what how they was working and how quick they were working. But no, going back to Railroad, it, it it's a standout on the album. How did it perform in the charts? It didn't. Oh. <laughs> Joking aside, Chris, it, di- it didn't do anything in Europe. Believe it or not, it actually reached number six in the Malaysian singles chart and a number nine spot in Singapore. Do you think that the lack of chart success in the US or in the UK or in Europe was because of the audience's unfamiliarity with Morris's voice? Because this is... The first time that Morris takes the lead on an A-side? Yeah, well, I don't think people would have heard him, would they? Because you've got to be a, 
a Bee Gees fan really too, you hear the albums and it's only then that you hear them. But if you, if you are just listening to all the singles, which obviously there's a singles chart, then no, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have heard him sing. So yeah, you, you could, you could be right there. And there's an interesting point in the ultimate biography Railroad was intended for an album. It doesn't specify which album, but it says that it was written for an album. I th- would guess that would be Cucumber Castle. Yeah, but it's not. Uh, yeah, I've not seen anything else written. You're right. There's there's an article in here that says that uh, he he decided that it was it was a rejected Bee Gees song. But I I can't. I'd find it hard to have a song like that rejected. If they can go with something like my thing, then my thing to me would be Railroad, wouldn't you? I'd swap it easily. Yeah, oh, easy. Swap it. Yeah. It's got a very BG sound to it, this one. You could put Barry in the backing vocals. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't think anything different, would you? There is a quote from Morris where obviously people think it, like us, think it sounds like the Bee Gees. He said, It's hardly surprising there could be a similarity between this. It's because I used to work out all the basic tracks of the Bee Gees. And I'd play piano, bass and rhythm acoustic guitars and sometimes even drums. So Morris, as we know, has always been there. He's been responsible for some some of the best known Bee Gees riffs and melody lines and arrangements. But it was just his voice that yeah. was an unknown. From the ultimate biography, it says that Railroad is structurally more complex than for the usual Bee Gees though the lyric about going home is less interesting. I think some of the Bee Gees songs are very complex. Yeah. I wonder whether they're referring to earlier stuff. Because I, I certainly wouldn't put anything on Odessa. As being less complex than Railroad? No. Or, or do you think it could be the last album, when they're just Morris and, and Barry? But no, I can't quite see that one. I couldn't find much in the way of reviews on this um, this single, but I managed to find one from Billboard. This was going into August, 29th of August, and, and Railroad appeared in their special merit spotlight section. Billboard wrote, The former BG offers a beautiful ballad performance that should quickly make its mark on the best-selling charts. Yep. So obviously they had high hopes up for it. But in so, terms of where that review was listed... They did anticipate as well that yeah. um, it might not get the the exposure that it deserves. Yeah. Well, I suppose when this came out, they, had, they hadn't hit the charts, had they, for a while? So they weren't a top top draw act, and obviously even less with with the going individually. How were you scoring Railroad? Nine, without a doubt, on this one. Yeah, I would go with an eight. I spent and I thought because I remember when we talked about this a little while ago. You said probably a six or a seven. Yeah, my in my initial scores for this album was much lower, but doing this podcast and having this numerous song, listens, numerous listens, really grown on me. I think it's excellent. Yeah, it is a good song. Really good.
second track on side two is Laughing Child. Now I'm in two minds about this one because as a song on its own listened to in isolation I think it's really good but at this point on the album it's too similar to the songs that have come before Mm. and as you said earlier on it requires repeated listening to really appreciate. Mm. Well I I think this one we're going back two years to it's going back to a typical ballad Bee Gees song from 67, 68. You hear the verse and then soon as the chorus, he's about to sing the chorus, I want to go into I Laugh In Your Face again. This one, out of all the ones we've heard, funny enough, miss it. you miss the other two. But with what you said, again, it's down to, I think we said it quite a few times, didn't we, with Cucumber Castle. You're having that one too many all the time, aren't you? If you were to put it on a Bee Gees album, it would be different to Robin, it would be different to Barry, it would be really good. But as it is here, buried on side two, it just gets a bit lost in the mix mm. for me. And I, and I, when I play the album, this is one that I forget about, hear it, enjoy it, finish listening to the album, and then forget about so it. It'd probably have been better if it was the last song on side one then. Yeah. And then you could turn it over and then into uh, the first one, which was Railroad, wasn't it? And as we'll see going through the rest of side two, a few more of the songs are a bit too much like this. Yeah. So it would have been nice to have had more variety. Same goes with Robin's Rain. It just needed a little bit more lightness to it, didn't it? Because it's all quite heavy. And dense. And dense, yeah. You know, considering they're sort of 20, it's all quite intense, isn't it? Nothing, let's have a party, is it? (laughs) There is some really great harmony work on this song throughout this whole album Morris tends to use the lower range of his voice the Mm. lower tomba so it's nice for this song even though he's singing quite low again in the harmonies he's at a much higher pitch For this one, I've gone with a 6 out of 10. I know we've been a little bit critical of these type of songs, but I think it's one of the better ones on this album. So I think for that reason, I'm going to go with a 7. Okay. It's a good song, uh, but as you say, it just seems a little bit lost where, where it's placed. And then next up, we have Something's Blowing.
Well, this one, Chris, I find quite similar to Soldier Johnny mm-hmm. in the melody and the construction of it. But I, find, as it goes on, it, it becomes more of a soundtrack song to a movie, you know, like a theme song to like a Western or something or other. It's got that sort of backing, isn't it? But what I've done... I. It, difficult because when I first heard this album I find that a lot of the tracks if you're not listening carefully they blend one into the other and it all becomes one track so through listening to this quite a few times particularly this one I find you need to hear it three or four times before the melody sort of really kicks in because something's blowing isn't really the chorus it's just part of the lyric. Yeah. So when you when you just read or hear the title, something's blowing, you forget what the melody is. Yeah. This is a really strong moment on the album for me. And as you said, it's one that requires repeated listening and requires attention to really appreciate. It's quite cinematic, isn't it, this one? Once yes. it gets going. Yeah, I think this is the strongest arrangement on the album that unfortunately is lost to the mists of time, along with many of these pieces. A good remaster would really help us to appreciate how well the arrangement is done on this. I did notice, Chris, this one's got an additional songwriter credits, somebody called Norman Hitchcock. So this is the three-man composition as well. So looking on Joseph Brennan's notes, it's got that this song was partly based on an unpublished song by RSO staff writer Norman Hitchcock. Okay. So I'm just wondering then, well, you, you've got about the backing and everything. I'm wondering whether there was some something there and then a song was put on top. That does make me wonder if Hitchcock had some of the lyrics written because some of the wording that's used, yonder, yeah. isn't really like anything no. else that Morris has used no. before. So I wonder whether some of the lyrics were already there from Hitchcock and then Morris, helped, and with, along with Laurie, helped to complete the arrangement. Yeah, to fully develop the song. This is a, another 7 out of 10. Yeah, I've gone. I've upped mine to a 7 on this one. That then brings us on to the next track, Silly Little Girl. Mm-hmm. 
This is the standout on this second side of the album. Easy. Easy. That's what I've got, Chris, actually. I've got... The, I've put it... It's a superb little song. And no fuss. And it, it it's like the BG stripped back. Yeah. You know, just the basic instrumentation on it. It would have been quite interesting if... Whether we'd got enough of it, if Robin had just done a vocal and piano. Because I think things like in the 70s, early 70s, you had a lot of... Songwriters, singer-songwriters, James Taylor, Nielsen, and then you had Joni Mitchell, even probably, you could say, Elton John. They're all singer-songwriters. Morris could have done that with more with this one. Yeah. One of my favourite things about the song is the harmony work. It's really effective. It's got hints of Beach Boys, do you think? Yep. Morris's vocal style, he's doing it in the pinched nasal Lennon. Yeah, oh yeah. Especially with what John Lennon was doing... 1968, Good Night on the mm. White Album. Well, the backing fits that. Yeah. It's a good night. But as we'll see with a later extra track, which we'll discuss after the album, Morris can do a really good John Lennon impression. He can do, yeah. Really good. I think we heard on... Did we mention a couple of ones before this one? On Horizontal. We? That's it. That's it. As it stands, this one is a, an eight for me. I've gone with an eight as well. I, I was comparing it against The Laughing Child, which I, I thought at the time were quite similar. But this is a standout one out of the two for me. Yeah. And on to the last track of the album, something a little bit different. It's an instrumental called Insight. that Insight has a loose swing feel to it and like Journey to the Misty Mountains this has that same television theme tune feel to it yeah what I've got funny enough I've got down it's very late 60s early 70s and I could imagine this as a theme tune to Top of the Pops yeah I don't know what he'd done if he decided to put lyrics to it but it's definitely it's something different and I suppose it's just he wanted to bookend the album this way. This sounds as though it's the result of a jamming session. It's as though there's yeah. Morris and the other musicians in a room 
they're all just going to play their instruments and see what melody line they can pick up from it or where it's going to go. And this is just two or three minutes from the recording that they managed to pick out as a complete song. That's completely my guess. Well, I don't think you're that far out, Chris, because according to Andrew Sandoval's book, it was recorded in one take. Initially, it had a vocal, but this will be replaced on the eight-track master by a brass overdub. As an instrumental, I don't find this as exciting as Journey to the Misty Mountains or as as exciting as the instrumentals on Odessa or the ones that we heard from Robin's album. Well, do you think the Journey was intended to be an instrumental? Whereas yeah. by from what we've read, this one was a song changed to an instrumental. And I think you probably work differently when you're composing an instrumental, aren't you, to, to this one, which going back to what you said, was, was probably just a jam. It is a shame that the vocal was replaced for instrumental because given that 99% of this collection is still officially unreleased, it doesn't matter whether the vocal was wiped or not. <laughs> no. And I would have preferred the song a lot more if there was a vocal there, so I've given it a five. I've gone with a five as well. Okay, so that wraps up the album The Loner. We'll go through our scores at the end of the episode, but now we're going to go through all of the additional tracks from 1969, 1970 that we've gathered, even some titles that we don't have a recording of. One or two we've found with... We're not 100% sure on the music and the title, are we? Yes. But we'll play it anyway and we'll go with the music and see what happens. And we'll start with Give Me a Glass of Wine. Well, here we come, Chris. This is my favourite song of the sessions. Yes, this is as good as anything on the album. And to put it on side two would have improved the album overall for me. Yeah. I've got to say, it reminds me, or it sounds like a, an, an outtake from Abbey Road. It's got quite a Paul McCartney piano. You Never Give Me Your Money. Yeah, that's it. You, you've, got, you've got a big production on this. Yeah. Could have been superb. Robin and Barry's harmonies. Yeah. Because there's good harmony work on this one as well. Perhaps... Too similar to Silly Little Girl to be considered 
to be put on this album. Yeah. Well, actually, Chris, this was recorded in April. Okay. So I'm thinking this is a month after the session for the album finished. I think from there onwards, you just find like, isolated tracks or a few tracks done here and there. But then the master for the album wasn't compiled until November 19th. But this is what I find strange. So anything recorded after that, I don't think was put on onto that group of songs, was it? I mean, how can you leave something like this unreleased? It was unbelievable. <laughs> thinking ahead to two years on when they were putting together the track list for that I really do wonder how many of these songs from the loner did Barry and Robin hear how many were actually considered because you said earlier a lot of these songs were from before two years on when they got back together anything that happened in this split period they just shoved under the bed Mm. and, and put to one side but I wonder how many of these songs did they actually consider and think can we make this a Bee Gees song or should we just write things together? I, I think it was I think it was basically I think like putting a cover and put put to one side because we're talking this was in April. I think by June, uh Robin and Morris had got together and already started working on fresh stuff. They were always looking forward and what now we, the two of us have got back together, let's see what we can do, and then Barry joined them. So I think anything solo was pushed aside, at least for the next album. Because I think for Trafalgar, I think Engine Airplanes from Robin's session was brought forward. So whether they were short of ideas or, or he was obviously keen for one or two songs to be pushed forward. But certainly any of any of these songs by Morris, nothing was... Didn't. I mean, we, and we, we've said when we were talking the album that there's at least two or three here that are way quality better than what what they did do. Even three years ahead, Life in a Tin Can... It's quite a short album, so it could have picked any of these songs to just have... Yeah, very short, that one, isn't it? Well, I th- we say short, but I suppose if you think the amount of recordings that they were doing, because in 72 you obviously had a couple of singles, B-sides that went on albums, then you had the unreleased stuff. There's like three albums worth in 72. They obviously were very prolific at the time and just thought, well, no, we might come back at a later date and... With the exception of Give a Hand, Take a Hand, that must be the only one that they ever went back to. Mm. You sometimes think what would have happened if Mr Natural... Well, it it, it didn't uh, set the charts alight, did it? They stuck with Arif Martin and, for the next album. If that had bombed, what would have happened then? Would they have gone back to any of this stuff? I don't know. I think they would have probably just gone down the route of writing for the people if worse comes to worst. Yeah. I'll have to have another look, but I can't see where hardly any of these songs that we've covered so far have been done by anybody else. Apart from the loner being done for Bloomfield's film, yeah. And also Touch and Understand Love, which is another Morris song from this period, which we'll talk about next. That was covered by Myrna March. She released her version in April 1970, but we'll look at Morris's version now. Try to touch and understand love It's floating everywhere around 
This and Give Me a Glass of Wine would have really improved the album. I'm looking on the notes, Chris. When Morris set out to do this album, or sessions, in in December 69, there were seven songs recorded. There were six with vocals, one without, and this is the only vocal one that wasn't on the album. The other five he used. That's interesting. Out of interest, what were those others? You've got I've Come Back, Railroad, which was obviously the end of B-side, then you got Laughing Child, She's the One You Love, The Loner, and then Touch and Stand Love. Okay. Something about this song always reminds me of Cucumber Castle. I think mm. it could have fit on there. It reminds me a bit of Sun in My Morning. Yeah, I mean, it's if you listen to it, the, the beginning is just Morris, an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Like the first bit. And then as the song goes, it, it gets... More of a piano yeah, ballad. It gets built, it builds up, doesn't it? So he starts off quite basic and then... But I always think it's really nice to hear a ballad not sung by Robin or Barry, but a ballad sung by Morris. Yeah. It's nice to hear his version. But do you think this one is touching on Rob, um, Barry territory? Touching and understanding on Barry's territory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, I, yes it is. Yeah. Um, if you listen, you listen again, you, 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 can th- you can imagine Barry singing this quite easy. Try to touch and understand love it's floating everywhere around us. The next two songs that we'll discuss are from the 20th of April 1970, and we have This Time and Alabama, so we'll begin with This Time. Now. <laughs> This is an interesting one because for me this is a song 
that just needs a vocal track added to it. it it's it's like it's just waiting for vocals to be added it's not an instrumental like journey to the misty mountains this one it feels like i'm just hearing a version without the vocals yeah well it's interesting you say that chris because on joseph brennan's notes here i'll read it says 20th of april as you correctly said is when it was recorded but it's got lead vocal morris gibb whether we all we've got is the non-vocal version before the vocals were put on and it sounds like others backing doesn't it it's got the same feel yes, as the rest of I, the I picked up some similarities in the chords and certain melody lines it sounded to me like bits of touching understand love and other bits sounded like then you left me yeah certain ways in which the melody and the chords progress yeah i mean all these songs are nearly all co-writes with billy laurie aren't they yeah so be interesting what we're playing instrumentals now so it's not just one writing the music one doing the lyrics is it yeah because if Morris's work process on this material was anything like how he was with the Bee Gees, as we discussed with Cucumber Castle, where he would be providing the chords to Barry's lyrics. Mm. If here he is providing again the chords and the music to Billy Laurie's lyrics, that could be the case, but we don't know for sure. No, and then the lyrics got wiped then. Yeah. Or, or I'd say the version we've got is just the backing track. What I did also notice with this song, with the chords, how they keep descending down, going further and further down, this is a technique that Morris used again on Trafalgar with It's Just The Way. Just the way that I'll feel about tomorrow Knowing you won't be there by my side The next song recorded on the 20th of April is one with vocals and that's Alabama. I think this is a bit of Morris one man band song. I think he bit of plays a bit of everything on this. Back double tracks his voice, does backing vocals. I suppose if the hypothetically if the album was released and they decided to go with a, a second single, it would make a fine B side. Yep. So it wouldn't be lost in time. It would, you know, in the midst of time, there would be something there. Other than that, there's not a lot I can say about it. I mean, it's been described as. One of the first styles in Morris's swamp rock. 
It's interesting that looking on the 20th of April, so he does Alabama, he does this time, and he also does another title, which is just titled as number three. I'm guessing that just gets the title number three because it was the third composition of the day. Yeah. To think that if you were to say to Morris, you're going to go in on the 20th of April, you're going to do these three songs, but these three songs are never going to see the light of day. Would you still go in the studio? Yeah, Yeah. it's an odd thing. I mean, it's still worthwhile going into the studio, it's good practice, and... There, are, there is something, you know, in this time in Alabama, we don't have number three, but I can imagine it would be of that ilk. But yeah, just to think that that studio day, what he would produce would just never be yeah. released. Well, this was the 20th of April, and the 23rd he does give me a glass of wine. So literally within three days, at least for me, he comes up with one, one classic song. And then for the next two songs that we're going to discuss, Danny and Till I Try... These were recorded in December 1970. We said before that the master for the loner was compiled in November 1970, so it's unlikely that Danny Until I Try would have ever been considered on the album. Yeah, and both these songs were on an acetate, so Danny and then to the side was Till I Try. this one it's a bit sweet it's like okay I've heard it before one too many I don't know what he intended to do with this sort of style of song I mean it doesn't to me doesn't represent what was happening in 1970 to me it sounds a little bit story song musical and he was involved with some musicals in this year yeah I mean it's not it's not bad don't be wrong, it's not bad, but I think, right, I've had enough of this. You want, you just want something a bit different. I know you've sort of been a bit critical of a song that didn't see the light of day, but neither did the others, so... <laughs> I suppose hearing things like The Loner and then Give Me a Glass of Wine and Touch and Understand Love, you're kind of hearing what we consider to be the best of Morris. Yeah. So you've got something to compare everything else to. And when you're getting a song like this, which on its own in isolation... It's a fine song, but it just doesn't compare to the rest. No. I don't quite... Unless this was... He was just recording a few things for possibly on the next album, Beaches. You just don't know, do you? But it, I, I can't see it because of, of the co-write. 
unless this was a demo for a song that Billy was intending to use for his own material. Yeah, could be. Okay, and for the other piece recorded on this day, which is Till I Try, this is an instrumental. And I think that this has a swamp rock flavour to it. And this Till I Try uses a section from Insight at a lot slower and a different different pace, as you said, sort of swamp rock style. Whereas the other one was sort of sixties, you know, late sixties party music. <laughs> this this takes this little section and redevelops it. song that we'll discuss was recorded way back on the 6th of August 1969 but wasn't released until 1970 and this is the contentious Have You Heard The Word by The Foot. Dad would you like to explain what this song is, who The Foot, F-U-T, who they are and what this is all about? Well The Foot comprises of Steve Groves, Steve Kipner, Morris and Billy Laurie which the foot, I assume, is a pseudonym or, or whatever for Tintin. This record is, we've picked it because obviously it's the famous bootleg that people did think was a lost track by the Beatles. So it's not got Morris's, is not involved in any of the writing credits or anything, just as a producer. And I assume he probably plays bass on it as well. On Joseph Brennan's notes and elsewhere, I've seen that it, it kind of lists the Steve, both Steve's and Billy as well on vocal. But I found a passage from the Ultimate Biography talking about this song. 
and there is a quotation from Morris, and he says, It was me, Steve Kipner, and Steve Groves, Tintin guys. He says that John Lennon and Paul McCartney turned up, and we were having drinks. We were just jamming. Everyone just started jamming, and the tapes were going. We were just getting ready to do some tracks, and we were just doing nothing, and I was farting around on the bass. I was a big pool freak. He was a great teacher for me. And then Morris goes on to say that John denied being involved in this session, but Paul didn't deny that he was involved here. And then, according to Steve Kipner, Morris and Billy were singing in funny voices and talking like the Beatles. And he says that Morris does quite a good Lennon. So, yeah. which leads me to think that that lead vocal is, well, is Morris. Yeah, well, you see, and then it didn't help then in the mid-80s, I think when they were going through all Lennon's tapes and copyrights and bits and pieces, that they registered this with Leno Ono music. So obviously then that brought on the thing that it was a Lennon composition. Listening to it in hindsight, it's clear that it's not Lennon. It's not the Beatles, it's it's an impression. But I also read as well that the song had already been registered in May 74, as written by Kipner and Groves. It wasn't what the Beatles were recording anyway in, in, in that time, was it? To me, this is, this, if you're going to say something, this is like some you could say it was something found in the bins around the time of Sergeant Pepper. So you've heard the word then? I've heard the word, yeah. Unlike the previous five albums that we've discussed in this podcast so far, this is slightly different in terms of reception and legacy because the loner was never officially released. But I have managed to find some reviews and thoughts about Morris's work during this period. From Morris himself, in a 1971 interview that was conducted by Nicky Horn for Radio 1, Morris said, My solo LP is one thing that, well, to tell you the truth... I don't think it should be worth releasing. 50 years later... They've still got the same thoughts. Yeah. I don't think it should be worth releasing because I did it a while ago and I was under a great depression at the time when I did it because I missed the boys, the Bee Gees, very much. I just did it because I thought I had to do it. And then during the recording of that material, Morris said, I'd seriously love to get back to the old Bee Gees again. I really loved the group and I miss the unit a lot. I then found a quotation from Morris from 1968, and I think that what Morris is saying in this quotation really applies to his work ethic from the period of music that we've discussed today. Mm. And he says, I do less singing, of course. I only come in on high harmonies. I'm more of the musician, playing the piano, bass, mellotron, or organ on records, which saves money on hiring musicians, for one thing. It's the same when it comes to writing. I write the music because I cannot really write lyrics, but I can write chords like Robin's never heard of, so I provide the music for them to write the lyrics to. It's the same as on stage. When we write, we complement each other. Yeah. So I suppose, looking back at the songs that we've discussed today, and sometimes we may have been a little bit critical of the lyrics or the arrangement on certain songs. Well, I think what Morris is saying here is that he really works better in a group environment. Because he know, he needs the feedback from, other, from the other two. And yeah. looking forward to the next 30 years of his musical career, it's telling that he never really released, he, he never did release a solo album. 
No, never did. So am I right in thinking that when they all regrouped again, that in future albums, Morris got more solo outings? Yes, because Odessa was the first time from Bee Gees' first horizontal idea. Odessa was the first time that he had the lead vocal, which leads me to think, was it part of the agreement that Morris would be allowed that one song on the album to really shine through? Yeah and demonstrate how much he developed, which he has in this material, The Loner. Yeah, and it's quite funny, isn't it, that some of the singles from the early 70s were Morris songs on the B-side? Yes, you're right, On Time. Country Woman. Yep. But even songs we'll get onto later on, like Lonely Days, for me always have a bit more of a Morris flavour to them. Okay. I see him as being the driving force behind songs like that. Looking on all music, there was a review by Richie Unterberger about The Loner, and he said that some of the songs verge on the experimental, by BG standards at any rate, like the ghostly, cinematic, orchestral, instrumental Journey to the Misty Mountains. Others do recall Barry Gibb's slightly mawkish country pop leanings, such as The Loner, Others are very much in the mould of slightly florid early Bee Gees pop rock, such as Please Lock Me Away and Soldier Johnny. And Silly Little Girl very strongly recalls the Beatles' more piano-based late 60s work, though with a more naive and downbeat flavour. Quite complimentally and engagingly written, produced and sung, there's no reason most fans of the early Bee Gees wouldn't like this stuff as well, should it ever find official release. Well, I've got to say, I agree with him. I think he hits the nail on the head here. Like us, he's found similar comparisons with all of the songs, both to comparing it to what both Barry and Robin were doing, also finding those Beatlesque comparisons. Yeah, and I agree. I think that for anyone who enjoys the 60s Bee Gees, anyone who enjoys, I think, any aspect of the Bee Gees, it's really worth delving into this material. Yeah, do you think this... If you were going to have an imaginary follow-up then to Odessa then, do you think it would be, would you prefer this one or would you prefer Robin's? It's a little bit difficult, I suppose, because we have heard a, a fully-fledged, proper release of Robin's reign, haven't we? This one we are relying on, as we've said many times, unofficial recordings. Plus that leads me to wonder whether an audience, well, would there have been an audience for this album in 1970 or 1971 because with Robin Robin's Reign that has now the big single didn't it it had the big single and also Robin Gibb is kind of a more of a household name because his vocals are much more prominent on Bee Gees records he's got a voice that people would recognise from the radio whereas with Morris unless you knew who the Bee Gees were hearing a song such as well, you, it, the you wouldn't know his voice really would you no every, as you say every since the record starts it's either Barry or Morris because they're both different you know so different you know straight away who it is but if Morris starts singing you wouldn't quite know you think it might be just more lean towards Barry wouldn't you yeah so it, it does make me wonder in hindsight it's an interesting question what you, you said yeah whether how would this have fared had it have come out as a follow up to Odessa. Mm. I think it would have required 
you would have had to have had Robin's Reign come out, maybe even then Barry's album, which we'll discuss in the next episode. Then after that, there would have been an audience for solo Bee Gees records. People would have then been ready. Okay, let's have the third Gibb Brothers album. Yeah. So you think he would have come, it would have been released, the last one. I think we mentioned earlier on, didn't we, that most of it was completed in March, but the Masters and everything... Was November. November. So, as we discussed before, was after, well after work had begun on two years on. Yeah. And Barry's, all Barry's solo stuff was in the can as well. So, yeah. yeah. I think think you're right. I think it, it definitely would have been the third of the three releases. Sometimes make me happy. I've reviewed our scores from before and after. So I went up from a original score of 6.5 to a 7.1. And you went up from a 6.7 to a 7.1. So both on a 7.1. And that's the first time that's happened. Yeah, I thought when we were going through the scores, a lot of ours were the same. A few of them, uh, for instance, I rated Journey slightly higher than you, with me giving it an 8, you giving it a 7. Whereas then you rated Railroad a 9, I gave it an 8. So... We had similarities, but then when I gave lower, you gave higher, and vice versa. Yeah, 7.1. But when you think of the album, when you think about The Loner, do you think of it as a 7 out of 10 album? Because that's that's your individual scores added together, but is that really what you think about this body of work? Well, if if you ask me straight away how would I rate the album, I would probably go 6.5. Okay. So back to your original score. Probably, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it's been a good a good review of all of Morris's work, sorting out and clearing up everything that he was getting on with during the split period. Yeah, and a lot of paperwork as well. Yeah. And investigating. Yeah, plenty of it. <laughs> on that note, Chris, I think we've covered everything. Unless anybody else knows different, I think that is what we've found between 69 and 70. As always, we're very much encouraging of people getting in touch if you have any other information, any recordings or just any memories or stories to share regarding this material, please do get in touch. Yes. In which case, we're going to leave you with a preview for the next episode. Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram 
at WordsBeechiesPodcast and on Twitter at WordsBeechiesPod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at WordsBeechiesPodcast at gmail.com. Just what you're doing to me